Last week, I came to you with an understanding, a proclamation, that the sermon I preached would be, if you are a believer, the most important sermon you would ever hear me preach. And that is because I preached on the supremacy and the character of biblical love, agape love. This is a love that we are to have for all people. This is a love with which God loves us. And it is so important because we saw in the passage in our study verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7, that without love, everything is worthless. Everything that the Christian does, no matter how noble it may look from the outside, no matter how sacrificial it may be without love, as we saw last week, it is worthless. In John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give you. And the new commandment was to love in the same way that he loves them. And what you might have missed the last time you read that verse is that new is not new in the sense of something that they had never heard before. This is something they knew. Especially those who were Jews, they knew the importance of loving. But things had gotten confused, things have gotten muddled because of all the ritualistic, legalistic teachings and ways of Judaism at that time. And in fact, when you see that word new in the Greek, it doesn't mean new as in a new car or a new baby that has never existed in your life before but new in the sense of fresh in quality. In other words, something that they had but was revamped, revitalized, redone so that it was a new level of love. Similar to that cup of coffee that you have in the morning at that favorite restaurant of yours. You've already had two cups. And she says, the waitress says, can I give you a new cup of coffee, a fresh cup of coffee? She's not going to bring you a new mug. It isn't the first time you've ordered coffee. You've had coffee. It's just something that's hot and fresh. It's the same idea there, a new commandment, a different nuance to it, and which was to love sacrificially which is something that they didn't fully understand at that time until, of course, they saw Jesus sacrifice his life on the cross. And so when we come to this understanding of love, it is so important to understand exactly what that means. And we unpacked that last week in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7. And I believe that what we did was not just to give you something new that you've never heard before, but to unpack the characteristics of love so that it was new and fresh in quality as Jesus commanded the disciples. I'd like you to turn there again, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Because of the importance and the depth of what we saw last week, as those of you who've been around, it's not common for me to spend just one sermon on such a large passage, but because I wanted to get it all in one sermon, because it is so important to not break up verses 1 through 3 and talk about how everything is worthless without love and say, well, wait till next week to understand what love is, to get it all together, there were a lot of things that I wanted to elaborate on that I didn't for the sake of time. And so this morning I want to look at this passage again and look at the same sermon title, Worthy or Worthless, but give you an FAQ, if you will. A frequently asked questions to clarify, fill in some of the gaps that are not necessarily found directly in 1 Corinthians 13, but to round out your understanding of biblical love. But first, let's read this again, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7. Paul, in the context of addressing their abuse of spiritual gifts, says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. 
Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account the wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I don't do this often. But if you are joining us this morning on the live stream or in person and you did not hear this sermon from last week, I encourage you to listen to it because the importance of love is found in what we saw last week and not so much this week. This is to fill in the blanks, the FAQ. You don't go onto a website and jump to the FAQ before reading the bulk of what that company does or sells. And so I would encourage you to go back and do that. But by way of quick review, we are looking at what is called agape love. It's a Greek word agape or the verb akabeo. You've probably heard that before. It simply means unconditional and volitional love. It is a love that we are to give to God, that we are to practice and display towards God and towards other people. Unconditional meaning, it doesn't mean, doesn't matter what the conditions are in your life. It doesn't mean, matter if you're tired. It doesn't matter if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're in the hospital. You are to love. It doesn't matter if the person that you are to love is unlovable, as many are. It doesn't matter if they are sinners, as all are. It doesn't matter if they don't want your love. If they reject your love, you still love them. But as I mentioned last week, one of the characteristics, the key two characteristics of agape love that is often missed or left out is the fact that it is volitional, it is a choice, and more and more as we buy into or as the world buys into Hollywood's version or definition of love, we must cling to this aspect of unconditional love. It is a choice. It is a volition. You don't fall out of love, you choose not to love anymore. You choose not to work on it. You choose to not put in the effort and the sacrifice understandable if you're not a believer because loving biblically is hard. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, it is biblically, humanly, not biblically, it is humanly impossible without the love of the Savior in true redemption. And so in the same way, you can't just trip and fall into love, fall in love. It's okay to use that terms. We understand what you're trying to say when you're telling about your story of how you met your spouse or whoever it may be. The first time you saw your newborn child, you fell in love with them. There's no sin in using those terms. We need to understand that for the believer to emulate and obey the love of God, it is a choice. It is true and it is fair to say that some people in your life are easier to love than others. That's true. Some people love you back. Some people are neutral. Some people are rude. Some people in our lives, we think, does this person have a mission to show me as much discomfort and hatred as possible? And so those people oftentimes will be harder to love. It's okay. It's okay if there are certain people who are harder to love in your life. It's not okay to say, I'm not going to love them. We are to love all people. And so with that brief review, let me go into our outline for this morning. And I've just put it together uh, as four different questions just to help us understand and fill in the blanks. The first is, what is the foundation of agape love? What is the foundation of this love that we are to have for other people. The foundation, of course, is God. But it's really a two-part foundation. The first is the love that God has for us. Without His love, we wouldn't know what love is. Without His love, we would not have the example of true, biblical, agape, perfect love. Without His love... As displayed in salvation, we would not have the ability to love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be all over the New Testament and even the Old Testament today. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, towards the end of your Bibles, 
Starting in chapter 7, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And so already right there, we get a clue that this kind of love is only possible for those who truly truly know Him. Verse 8, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There's a primary foundation. It isn't just that God loves us, which is true. God is love. It defines who He is. It is a core attribute of His character. He loves because He is love. And so we look not only to what He has done as an example of love for us, but we also look to who He is. Verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us. See? Again, love didn't become when it was manifested or when He did something. He was already love and that love was manifested. How so? Let's see. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, and here it is, we also ought to love one another. There's the foundation. He is love. He loved us. He sent His Son. You could just as easily jump to infamous John 3.16. And because of that, we are to love as well. Jump down to verse 19 in 1 John 4, or verse 16 rather. 16 through 19. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And here it is. We love because He first loved us. That is the first part of the foundation of how we are to love other people. To understand that we are the recipients of the greatest love ever known to man and will ever be known to man. Out of that primary foundation flows the second part of the foundation for loving others is first because he has loved us, second, we love him. Loving God is the foundation to loving others. You cannot love others if you don't first love God. You cannot love God if he has not first loved you. See the progression there? Theoretically, it's easier to love God than to love other human beings because God does no wrong. And even when you could say, God has hurt me, God has harmed me, you know, ultimately, biblically, that he still loves you and he can do no wrong. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40 says, One of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the top commandment? What is the most important one? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second, not equal, not first, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he goes on and says in Matthew 22, verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, these two verses are the key, the capstone, the foundation of everything else in Scripture, which is why... You can take every command in Scripture, especially the New Testament, every command to believers, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, do this to your fellow brethren, do this in the church, do this to the world. 
But Paul, in one fell swoop, can say, but all of that is worthless if you don't love. Because Jesus himself said it. Number one and number two. We're focusing on the first one. Jesus, when he says, you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. This has been true. God's desire for his people to love him has been true from the beginning of time. Deuteronomy 6.5 is part of what we call the Shema. This is something you should probably be familiar with. It is very famous within Judaism. It is something we need to be familiar with as believers. The word Shema is the word for hear. And it comes from the preceding verse, Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, listen up. The Lord is our God and the Lord is one. And when you look at the foundation in the Old Testament, the Shema is consisted of three passages. Deuteronomy 6.4-9, Deuteronomy 11.13-21, and Numbers 15.37-41. And the Shema was recited by pious Jews twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. They memorized it. They recited it. These passages would also be written on little pieces of parchment and placed in small boxes known as phylacteries. Devout Jews would wear these phylacteries on their forehead and on their left arm. You learn more about these when you read about Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. The performance of these rituals in Jesus' time was one of the reasons Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they were tying them on their foreheads and arms. They were reciting it twice a day at least, but they weren't practicing it. They weren't actually doing what they were reciting. They would also put these pieces of parchment in mezuzahs, small boxes attached to doorposts, Some of you may have seen these. Some of you may have these on your home and wondered, what is this tiny little plastic box right outside my front door that's put in the door frame, often has the Star of David on it. Inside is a parchment piece of paper with the Shema. It means an Orthodox Jew probably lived in or owned in the home before you moved in there. They still do that to this day. I saw it once and waiting in the uh, the waiting at my gate for a flight. bunch of Orthodox Jews with the uh, uncut locks on the side of their heads, long hair, and they took these straps of leather with the phylactery and put it either on their arm and on their forehead and they just started bowing and they were silently praying, I would guess, in their tradition, reciting the Shema. Let me read for you Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, which is the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall, here it is, bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. This is where the phylacteries came from. And the Azuzah, now verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The point for the ancient Jews the nation of Israel, was that you must never forget this. And indeed, they never forgot. They just stopped practicing. This is why it is so important to understand the foundation of love. It's not just memorizing Scripture. It's not just being able to to define Greek or Hebrew words. It is practicing biblical love. And so Jesus, when he is asked what is the foremost commandment, quotes the Shema, and there he uses the word agape. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. To love God unconditionally and volitionally. But we're talking about loving God, and he says with your heart. 
This is the core of who you are. This is not talking about your physical organ, the heart. It's your heart. When you say, I love you with all my heart, it is the core of who you are. It is the inner self where the will and the desires originate. In other words, everything about you and your choices and your desires should be based upon a love of God. He says, with all your soul, this speaks of emotion. With all your mind, this represents the cognitive, intellectual part of you. Intention, purpose, acting with energy and strength. And this complete dedication to God and love is seen in this unfortunately, unfortunate rather passage that we see in John 21. I'd like you to turn there. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. This is after Jesus has come and has met with the, the disciples. And you have this infamous scene between the disciples, but specifically Peter, known as Simon or Simon Peter, and Jesus Christ. John 21, verses 15 through 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Speaking of the other disciples. He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. In a little bit, we'll talk about the different types of love in the Greek New Testament. There is this agape love, which is the ultimate love. There is another love called phileo love that's used in the scriptures. It's known as brotherly love. It's where the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, gets its name. A lot of times people see this passage and they make much of the fact that the first two times Jesus says, do you agape, unconditionally love me? And Peter answers, yes, I phileo love you. But the third time Jesus actually says, do you phileo love me? And Peter says, you know all things, you know I brotherly love you. Something to understand is those two types of love are used interchangeably at times. In fact, there are passages where the love that God has for us is the phileo love. It's quite possible that after denying Jesus three times as prophesied, Peter was afraid to say, yes, I have a total commitment love to you. I just have phileo love for you. Still a very powerful love, a love that you would have with close friends or close relatives. And the grieving was not because I believe Jesus was using different words, but because Jesus asked him three different times. But here's the point. The point is, after every time, Jesus says, then take care of my people. In other words, the main point that we are to get from this is that loving Jesus means more than loving Jesus. It means loving other people as well. But loving Jesus is foundational to loving other people. It is a total commitment that involves not just loving Him wholly and completely, but loving other people as well. The key, one of the keys is found in the first time He asks, He says, do you love me more than these guys? This band of brothers, your closest friends right now. And that's a good question for us. Do you love Jesus more than you love your closest friends, your spouse, your parents, the baby in your arms last night? We'll talk more about that in a second. 
This reminds us of the commitment called for by Christ in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 38. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. That's huge. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And it's fitting, then he says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He is not saying you are not to love your family members. It's very clear in Scripture that you are to, if not just from what we saw last week, because they are part of everyone that you are to love. There is a special love that you are to have for your family members and a special relationship that is called out in the Scriptures. But we are not to love family more than we love God. And we are definitely not to let our commitment to family, whether it's spending time with them, whether it's the need for you to provide for their existence and life, we are not to let those things get in the way of our love for God. Again, be careful. This doesn't mean going out and doing stuff and just being more legalistic. That means a heartfelt, deep love for God. We are still to prioritize our family. We are to love our parents. We are to love our children. But the the Bible is very clear about that. We just don't let those priorities get in the way of the priority, which is God. Parents and children are to be a priority, not the priority. God is the priority. And just as loving God is a foundation to loving others, loving God is going to be your foundation for loving properly your spouse, your children, your parents. This is not an excuse to dislike people in your family or to love them less than you are supposed to. You are still to love them with agape love. Speaking of loving anything more than Him, it's not just family and friends and people that get in the way. The clearest picture we have of the battle between one's affections is in Matthew 6. It is money. And so it is possessions, loving possessions that can get in the way of loving God fully and completely. And so love God because He has loved you. Here's the bottom line. You cannot love others biblically if you do not primarily love God. And you do not love God biblically if you do not love others. I'm going to say that again. You cannot love others biblically if you do not primarily love God. And you do not primarily love God biblically if you don't love others. You can't have one without the other. And so... The foundation of loving God to loving your neighbor as yourself. And so the second question I want to address is, who is my neighbor? The concept of loving your neighbor as yourself comes uh, from Leviticus. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament there as well. Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the verse ends with, I am the Lord. Seal of approval. You better do it. Leviticus 19.18. And so, we have a great explanation from Jesus himself of who our neighbor is. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, let's start in verse 25 to, to recap what we just saw. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. Who is your neighbor? And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Good answer. He got it. Verse 28. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied and said, and here we have the great story of the Good Samaritan. You ever heard that term? This is where it comes from. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. That being their mode of transportation back then. Verse 35, On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. You ever seen an old western? There's always these hotels or inns, but the owner of the inn is very much involved with the people, cooking for them, taking care of them. That's kind of what it was like back there then. There would have been a person who had a room or two to let, and he would take care of the individual. That's why this makes sense. Don't think like Hyatt Regency, asking the guy in the front desk to take care of someone. It's not going to happen. So that's the picture here. Okay? And he gives them enough to take care of them, and he says, look, I'm going to come back. And if you needed to spend more money on him for his wounds or his food or medicine or whatever it is, I will pay for it. Verse 36. Jesus, having told this story, says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him, the Samaritan. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. The priest, the Levite, perhaps for religious cleanliness reasons, went to the other side, but more importantly, didn't help this guy who was half dead. You ever been half dead? I would imagine being half dead is as good as dead if no one comes to help, especially back then. Jews then more than today, would help their own people. And here are two leaders of the Jews, leaders of God's people, possibly people who were traveling that road in between their twice-daily recitation of the Shema, ignoring this battered and bruised individual. They did nothing. And here comes a Samaritan, someone that the Jews considered a half-breed, half-Jew, half-Gentile, shunned by the Jews, considered unclean, not even allowed to worship with them, not allowed in the temple, and yet this person helped the individual. The outcast of society, not saying, well, Karma, you deserve it. Not going to help you. You wouldn't help me, which is probably true. He helped. He didn't just say, hey, are you okay? And call someone else, a Jew, and say, hey, help this guy. Spent money, spent time, bandaged him up. He helped him. And so, who, according to Jesus, is your neighbor? Your neighbor according to this passage and according to Scripture, is anyone you come across on the road who is half dead? No, I'm just kidding. Your neighbor is anyone that you can represent the love of God to. Let me say that again. Your neighbor is anyone that you can represent the love of God to. Let me say the exact same thing again. Your neighbor is everyone. Not just people who accept the gospel, not just people that you have a relationship with that you want to share the gospel with. You are to represent God with everyone. Your neighbor is everyone that you come across. Your physical next-door neighbor, yes. Some of you don't even know your neighbors. You need to get to know them. 
The people on the bus that you see, yes. Your coworkers, yes. Your cousin you see once every three years, yes. Anyone that you can represent God to, which means everyone. That is why it is so important that we work on, as I said last week, the character of love rather than trying to love each individual person. And if that confused you last week, that's understandable. Let me try to clarify. It's like this. You ever met someone who's just nice? Not just nice to you. They're just nice people. They're just always bubbling over. Right? You're just like, this, this person's always nice. I've never seen them not nice. I mean, we can all be nice, but there's some people who are just characterized as being nice. I, right off the bat, I think of a couple people in our church. Not that the rest of you aren't nice. Yeah. But their people are just constantly nice. I think of Bugler. I think of Debbie. They're just always nice. The rest of us, myself included, we're nice to certain people and at certain times, but we're neutral to others. We can be downright rude to other people. We can be rude to everyone when we're tired or we had a bad day or the child didn't do what we wanted this morning, whatever it may be, right? And that's generally what people are like. Nice to some people, not nice to others, neutral to other people. That's not what we want to be with our love. We want to just be loving. That person is just loving. With whom? Everyone. It's just who they are. They're just loving. Imagine this. It's a week before Thanksgiving, believe it or not. (laughs) Right? A week? Two weeks. Less than two weeks before Thanksgiving. I feel like just yesterday we were celebrating New Year's. But the year has gone by, and finally, families open to having people over and going back to your normal Thanksgiving dinner. And you find out, oh, that cousin is going to be there. The cousin. And you say, well, just studied 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to love that cousin. And so I'm going to think about it, and I know what bothers me about that cousin. It is just the way that they criticize everything in our home. And it's not so much me. It's just I, f- I feel bad for my parents because I know how hard they work to decorate and do all these things and make a meal. And this cousin comes and just criticizes everything. And so because I know that she is extra critical, I'm just going to muster up the extra patience for that cousin, especially when they say mean things. And you may even prepare your responses to not be nasty like you were a couple years ago. And then you find out, oh, her dad's coming too. And I understand he's not a believer and I have different convictions, but the fact that he insists on bringing all his own beer and is drunk before we even start dinner and he's just rude and obnoxious, but you know what? I'm going to be loving. And I'm going to be extra patient. And I'm going to maybe help him as he tries to stagger to the dinner table. And I'm going to work on that particular issue with that person. The words of my cousin, the drunkenness of my uncle. And then when you understand that your neighbor is everyone, you will never love everyone if you need to go and pinpoint the specific issues of every single person in your life and try to deal with those proactively, you're never going to do it. Unless you develop the overarching character of love, which doesn't matter who it is or what their issue is or what your issue is with them. You're just loving. Does that make sense? Now, of course, as you do that, there will be times where it is fitting to understand different people and how to love them best. But if you only do that, you can see how that's just never going to happen. Because maybe you thought your neighbor was five people walking in this morning, but now you know it's probably in the hundreds, if not thousands. You'll never do it. So develop the character of love. 
You won't need to go person to person, how can I love them, how can I love them? You just love. And you practice the characteristics of love that we saw last week all the time with every person. Thirdly, I want to talk about, you've probably heard that there are different words for love in the Greek, and you're right, and so there are different words for love in our New Testament. This is something that's common if you speak uh, another language fluently. You know that there are some words that just don't translate because the language you're trying to translate into doesn't have a corresponding word. Even if you speak another language, usually just your greeting. There's often not a word that directly translates hello in many languages around the world. It's usually how are you doing, are you well, peace be with you. But if you were to translate, you just say, oh, he said hello, because that's what it means. But that's not technically what it means. And so that's why a lot of times in the English We have to go into the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic because there are nuances, but in English it's just, we just have the word love. The word like would not do it justice, right? Even saying brotherly love is not totally accurate. And so we just say love and then hope that you get into the original languages at some point. There are three words for love in Greek. The first we've been looking at, agape, unconditional, and volitional love. We don't need to spend time there. The second I mentioned earlier is phileo, most commonly described as brotherly love. And it's described as that because it speaks of a very close, intimate relationship with someone that you have as an individual, right? So you can see how that's a little different than what we're talking about with agape love, just love everyone, but not everyone's going to be a close friend, which is why it was still significant that Peter said, I love you with brotherly love, Jesus. I love you. And that's why we are called to also agape love our enemies, not phileo love, brotherly love our enemies. That's not going to happen. They're your enemy. They don't want to be your close friend. But you can still agape love them, so there are different nuances. It is used in John chapter 11 verse 36, to describe the love Jesus has for Lazarus, his close friend, brotherly love. And when we we are called to love Jesus more than father and mother, as we read earlier in Matthew, it is phileo there. It's saying this relationship love that you have with your parents and with your children, you are to have that relationship love with Jesus, with God. Same in John chapter 5, verse 20. When it says the Father loves the Son, that's phileo love there. It's still a powerful and significant type of love. John 16, 27. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I come forth from the Father. The Father loves us. That's phileo love there. That's a brotherly, direct relationship, heavenly Father to saved child love. Now, this love often gets a bad rap because of the conversation between Peter and Jesus. People like to highlight that Peter was saying he loved him with a lesser love and not an agape love. But you need to understand, as we've just saw, it's often used interchangeably in Scripture. Agape and phileo, it is love. And then thirdly, in the Greek, is eros love. Sounds like erotic That's where we get the word eros love. It's closer to our modern Western idea of romantic love and it is never found in Scripture. What we define as romantic love is never found in Scripture. In fact, eros was even considered by ancient Greeks to be dangerous because of the uncontrolled passions and actions that result of such love, from such love. You understand this. We see this in our society. Someone's obsessed with a celebrity or out of of this passionate, romantic, emotional love uh, for their spouse, they go and kill somebody. Or they kill someone's spouse because they love this woman or whatever it is. Even the ancient Greeks said this stuff, Eros love is dangerous because what people do for love. 
right? And somehow in our society, we've extolled that. Oh, what I would do for love. Oh, my friend, I don't want to know. Please don't do it. Right? People get in fights. People do all kinds of wicked, evil things out of this kind of love. And so we understand that is more emotional than fact-driven, than God-driven. And so naturally, it's not in the New Testament. A big takeaway for us from this is that then the love that we are to have for a spouse is agape love or phileo love. You can call it romantic love. You can call it romance. I understand that. That's fine. Again, we understand what you're saying. But just don't buy into the world's definition of love and understand that what a gift it is for you to be dating, what a privilege it is for you to be married. Yes, the two have become one flesh, but that individual is also a brother or sister in Christ. And there is no marriage in heaven, and so assuming you're both believers, you will both be brother and sister, not married for eternity. And hence, even more, the appropriateness of phileo and agape love for your spouse. Okay? So three kinds of love in the ancient Greek, two of which are used in Scripture. Finally, number four, we looked at 15 characteristics of love last week that's, that are found in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. What is the most important of the 15 characteristics of love? What is the most important of the 15 characteristics of love? Naturally, they are all important. Theologically, theologically, they are all equally important. They are all components of love. It's kind of like, uh, what is the most important characteristic of God? Well, there's some we like more than others. Some say that holiness is supreme and rules the others. That's not biblical. It's not theologically accurate. They're all equal. And if you take any of those attributes away from him, he ceases to be the God of the Bible. You've heard me say this before. I'm kind of going on a tangent here. But if people say, well, you know, I believe I'm a good person and I believe in God and I know you read the Bible and he was a God of wrath, but he's now a God of love. He's no longer a God of wrath. You can, with a full foundation of the Word of God, say, well, we're actually talking about different gods then. You're talking about a God that you made up that is not a God of wrath, that's not a God of the Bible. He is all of those things. You can't take any of them away and he still be the God of the Bible because the Bible defines him as such. And the Bible has defined agape love in 15 characteristics and if you take any of them away or diminish any of them, it is no longer agape love. So you can't really say which one is the most important because they all are basic definitions of what love is, theologically. Practically, for you, which is the most important of the 15 characteristics? Practically, this is going to be different for everyone, it's the one that you are weakest in because it's the one you need to work on the most so that your love is, well, love. Now that's not to say that we need to be perfect in all of these to be able to love, otherwise we would never love. And again, we may be weaker in some of these areas with some people than with others. But again, if you have no patience with this person, it is then fair to say that you have a harder time loving that person because that's one of the essential qualities of love. We need to do all of them for it to be true love. And we're going to be, again, weaker in some, stronger in others. It's going to vary by time of day, time of month, what you're going through, work schedule, summer schedule, whatever it may be. But we need to excel still more. So as we went through those 15 characteristics last week, the ones that perhaps you were most convicted by, that's the most important to you because that's the one you need to pray about. You need to repent towards that. You need to work on it. 
And maybe for some of us, the, of the 15 characteristics that we were least convicted by, that might be one you need to work on too because often when there's no conviction and no desire to excel still more, it's because we have so seared our conscience that it's not even an issue for us. Something to think about. I'm not saying that's true for all of us, but something to think about. Regardless, we can all excel still more because none of us love perfectly. And so I wanted to fill in some of those blanks and round out our message or discussion from last week. I hope that helps and helps us, it helps us to excel still more in our love. I would encourage you, uh, if you haven't, to go back and listen to that passage because, listen to that sermon because it is so important for us, especially in the midst of service, as we're looking at service in 1 Corinthians. Should the Lord tarry and we have many years on this earth, we want to make sure that what we do is worthy of the name of God, worthy of the title of Christian. And Paul said it doesn't matter what's on the outside. It doesn't even matter how many you may help, how many people may financially or emotionally benefit for you. It is worthless if you do not do it out of love. And now we understand not just love for that individual, but love for God as well. Let us strive for biblical love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word and that your word is so complete that we can look to other places in Scripture and nothing contradicts and everything fills in other places. Help us to love. Help us to excel still more. Use us for your glory, Lord. Reveal to us for your own namesake, our weaknesses and these 15 characteristics. And may we develop the character of love so that we will abound in loving kindness so that we can be like our Heavenly Father. Help us to use the strength you have given us. Help us to meditate on the love with which you first loved us. I pray that the gospel would be the foundation of everything because in it is found the greatest manifestation of your love for us. Help us to help one another. Ultimately, Lord, we need your help. Do so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and close in song.